0: You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Who had a good week? Uh, that's pretty Good. That was better than I thought. Who had a bad week? Maybe you're afraid to do that. All right, that's okay. We have some good ones. We have some bad ones, don't we? Well, if you had a good one or a bad one, this is a great place to be to start a new one, right? You know, because you can kind of get re-centered on God, refocused, clean slate, uh, just really get a new beginning, and that's so important. And uh, we're just so glad that you're here today. If you're watching online, welcome. If you're going to watch throughout the week, welcome. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Lance. I'm one of the teaching pastors pastors here at Calvary. And today we're going to continue the sermon series we began a couple weeks ago entitled, The Search for Significance. And what we've been discussing in this month so far is God's desire for us to be truly free, to enjoy God's love, No longer bound by things like approval, or needing other people's approval, or performing for other people. And, you know, in the first week, Dr. Kim did such an awesome job walking us through John 17, which is often known as the High Priestly Prayer, and he really talked to us about what does it look like when we no longer get stuck in the performance trap of having to please everyone else, but we can focus on just living for an audience of one and that being God. And then last week, Pastor Nick walked us through the book of Galatians and what it means to be an approval addict and when we're obsessed with pleasing people. And this morning, we want to move on to the subject of the blame game. And we're gonna talk about what happens when we kind of live in this world where blame becomes normal and a natural way of living. Anybody here uh, a fan of the Sunday comics? Anybody, a Sunday comic person? I-, I was a Sunday comic person uh, growing up my- online. I think it's because when I was really young, my dad turned me on to reading the newspaper. I grew up in Albany, New York, and the Times Union was the big paper there, and one of the ways that my dad and I connected was throughout the week, in the morning, before he would go to work, before I would go to school, we would eat our breakfast, and we would pass the paper, and it always started with the sports section, and I've always been a big sports fan, but I really looked forward to Sundays, because Sundays was what? Not just any comics, right? at least for our paper, it was color comics, right? Uh, and what could be better than color comics? And, and I remember Beetle Bailey and Hagar the Horrible and Peanuts and Garfield and the Far Side and Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody with me this morning, right? Can I get an amen, right? Like, like I love comics, but my favorite color comic growing up was the Family Circus. Any fans of the Family Circus here this morning? I I was a big Family Circus uh, fan, and, and I liked it because it was a single captioned panel, you know, that round border, but it was really easy to understand the message. It wasn't all these different frames, it was just one simple picture, a couple words, and it started all the way back, believe it or not, in 1960, And it's the most widely syndicated comic in actually American history. It's kind of crazy to think about it. But it revolved around the life of Bill and Selma, the parents, and their four little children, Billy, Dolly, Jeffy, and PJ. And again, what I love is how relatable it is. And, And I don't remember exactly when I first noticed it but we're going to put one of those comics up on the screen this morning and maybe you remember this one because this was one in a in a series right where who threw the sunflower seeds all over the floor and she's looking right at the kid and then walking by the kid is who? The Not Me Ghost, right? Or the Gremlin, as they called it. And and Bill Keen, who started this comic, um, he introduced the Not Me Ghost in 1975, and it was so popular that he added more Gremlins or Ghosts to the lineup. So we got another one here for you. I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway. Who broke my good plate? And then on the end, we got... I don't know. And then on the other end, we got nobody. And then kind of right there, squeezed in, the not-me ghost. And I remember reading this, and I don't know how old I was, to be honest with you, maybe 10, 11, 12, and just kind of getting a wry smile on my face as a kid. You know, a mischievous little smile of... I can relate to this comic, right? Like uh, who is watching my house? Who is watching me? Because I'll be very transparent. I was the not me ghost a lot when I was a kid. Like I was really, really good at being the not me ghost. And I know now that I didn't inspire Bill Keen when he did that. At least not all all on my own. But you know what I do know? I definitely imitated that, right? Uh, Any of you have some not me ghosts in your house? Anybody? Yeah, there's lots of not me ghosts in our house. And listen, this is when the biblical verse from Galatians became most clear. You reap what you, man, my kids. I'm not going to throw them under the bus because this is a sermon about blaming this morning, but they were really, really, really good. I mean, I must have a thousand not-me ghosts uh, running around my house, but you know what I learned? Not-me ghosts, not just for kids, a lot of teenagers. And as we age and grow and become adults, guess what? We still have a lot of not-me ghosts. We grow up, but we don't grow out. We continue a pattern of blame-shifting. The reality is, is that human nature is prone to disown what we should own. That human nature is prone to disown what we should own. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. It's their fault. And I think more than now than ever, we're living in a society that is obsessed with blame shifting. It's not me. I'm not the problem. You're the problem. It's not us. It's them. They're the problem. And as people and communities and sometimes even in churches and as a country, we are obsessed and caught up with this blame game. And the truth is, as a child, it's pretty innocent, right? But as an adult, it can become incendiary. I mean, let's be honest. As a kid, if they slap one of their other kids, who started it? Not me. It goes away in five minutes, right? Until the next five minutes when another not me starts. But as we get older, the not me's don't pass quite as quickly. And a pattern of blame actually can begin to batter and destroy relationships, marriages, homes, families. Blame's been known to hurt a few churches, communities, countries it's their fault. They're wrong. I'm right. We are prone to disown what we should own. And it got me thinking, why? Why do we do this? Why are we so obsessed with blame shifting? Why are we so obsessed with making sure that it's someone else's fault and not our own? And listen, if you're sitting here listening to this right now and you're thinking, I don't do this, then you are the problem, right? Because if you're sitting here thinking about, I'm not somebody who blames in the middle of blaming, then, right, why? Why does it always have to be somebody else's fault? Why do we do it as kids? Why do our kids do it? Why do we still do it as adults? And I think there's a number of reasons, to be honest with you. Maybe you're kind of thinking through that question as I'm asking that question. Why do we do this? I think there's a number of reasons. The first one is is I don't think we want to be wrong. I just think there's something about us that we don't want to be wrong. We, we want to be right because there's something more comforting about being right. I think another reason is, is, and I know this doesn't happen to the people who attend this church, but sometimes we're just vindictive, right? That happens down, and I'm not going to name any churches because I don't know any church. I, you know, I don't want to go there, but like, like, We would not do that, but sometimes we just want other people to get in trouble. Isn't that why we did it as a kid? Like, we just do it and then say we didn't do it so that they would get busted. Why? Why do we do this? I think one of the big reasons we blame shift is because we don't want to get in trouble. We personally don't want to be in trouble. And I actually think at the, at the heart of it, I think fear drives our blame shifting. I think fear drives our blame shifting. The fear of failure, us personally feeling like we've failed. I think the fear of consequences, what may result if I'm really responsible for this. I mean, if it's someone else's fault, uh, then it's not mine. And as long as it's not mine, I don't have to deal with it. If it's them, then it's not me. Well, when we look at blame in the Bible, we don't have to go very far, do we? (laughs) We only have to sneak a couple chapters into the book of Genesis, right? And we begin to see very early in human history that blame shifting was a natural human reaction. And as we look at it, we just want to unpack a little bit of biblical truth that I hope helps us with this this morning. Because most of you are probably familiar with the story of Genesis and everything getting started, but let me kind of set the scene for you really quickly. The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. It begins with God. It begins With him speaking forth his creation. It begins with goodness and pushing back, and everybody saying, and they saw, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. So the Bible begins with beauty. It begins with bounty. There's no limit to what is available. It begins with harmony. Everything is in symbiosis, everything is kind of flowing together. It's a beautiful thing, and there's only one rule. How many of you would love to live in a one rule world? Uh, I would love that, right? One rule. Like the one rule was don't touch the wet paint, right? One rule. I would absolutely, how many of you parents would love to be able to govern your house with just one rule? <laughs> yes, so let's start a petition or something, right? Like one rule. Like, this is just the perfect environment. And the one rule was you can enjoy everything to the fullest, the bounty, the beauty. You just can't do this one thing. Well, Adam and Eve, they disobeyed that one rule. And what happened when they disobeyed that one rule? Did everything stay the same? No, everything changed, didn't it? Harmony was halted. Beauty was marred. And God, who would come to them daily in conversation or often in conversation to him comes after they break this rule and they kind of know something's different. You've probably heard before the phrase, the elephant in the room, right? And now there's an elephant in the garden and something's off. The harmony's not there anymore. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, God asks this question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So God, like Bill and Thelma King, uh, Bill and Thelma from the family circus says, what happened here? What happened here? And Adam clears his throat. Verse 12, we're just going to look at the first five words because that'll be enough. (laughs) The man said, the woman. (laughs) The man said, the woman. So first of all, this is a dumb man. And secondly, I think this is the proof that that the fall of man happened within the first two weeks of creation. Because if this woman had 30 years to work on him, he wouldn't have been that stupid, right? What happened? The man said, the woman. His immediate reaction, shift the blame not my fault. Now, did I mention this man was dumb? <laughs> Going on, we've made it past the first five words now. Let's keep moving. The man said, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate God you were not very smart you sent me this woman and she has been nothing but trouble she did something really dumb She tied me down, restrained my hands and my feet, uh, pried open my mouth with vice grips, and she force fed me. (laughs) Which is actually really man speak for she handed it to me. (laughs) God, it's her fault. God, it's your fault. So over here, Adam is digging the first grave, right? And over here, Eve is tapping the first foot, right? And she's patiently waiting her turn, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The devil made me do it! We got a creative bunch of humans right here, don't we? Like, I'm definitely blaming Eve for starting that one because we got proof uh, right here that whenever I've thought the devil made me do it or whenever you've thought it or you've said it, right, we do actually have someone to blame, she started it. But that's her response. Adam's like, that woman and you, and she's like, well, The devil! So Adam's like, wasn't me. And Eve's like, wasn't me either. It's very funny. We got a bunch of not-me ghosts running all around the Garden of Eden. Nobody did it. Nobody's responsible. So now God looks at the devil and says, what do you got to say for yourself? Well, we have to jump back up to verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, it says this, and he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So Genesis chapter 3 starts with the devil questioning God. Verse 4: But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Who does the devil blame? devil blames God. God, it's all your fault. You gave him this great place to have, but you won't let him enjoy all of it to the fullest. God, why do you give all this beauty and all this bounty and then still have rules? There's something wrong with your, your flawed God and your philosophy of creating things. And the devil questions God and blames God. Why won't he just let everybody enjoy everything that he created however they want to enjoy it? So everybody is just blaming everybody. And it leads me back to the same question I asked a few minutes ago. Why? 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 Well, again, I do think Genesis provides the answer. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 going to read a few verses here. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself." So Adam and Eve are like the child who hides the jelly donut behind their back when powder's all over their chin, guilty yet trying not to be guilty. Guilty but trying to hide their guilt, obvious to everyone but themselves. And I think this is really powerful to understand what's going on here as it's being related to us by the writer of Genesis. We did something wrong. We are naked. You know what happened in that moment that had never happened previously? Adam and Eve felt vulnerable. Adam and Eve felt vulnerable. A feeling they had never experienced before. And that vulnerability made them afraid. It filled them with fear. They were afraid of how it made them feel. Never before in their life had they experienced shame, guilt. Never. This feeling. Was new and foreign, and they didn't like it. It was vulnerable, guilt. So they were feeling things that they had never felt before, and it made them fearful. They were also afraid of what God was going to think, right? Because they hid themselves. They knew something had changed. They knew that there was a new vulnerability. There were new emotions that had never been experienced. And they were afraid of what he was going to think. They were afraid of what he was going to say. And they were afraid of their consequences. They were afraid of, man, God said if we do this, we will surely... What does that even mean? Because up to that point in time, there was no reality of what death even looked like, and now there was this foreboding fear, not only of their own feelings, not only of what God would think, but what would be the consequences? And they thought in that moment that their best recourse Rather than to deal with the shame and the guilt and and all of those things, rather than to own up to God, what they thought was the best recourse was blame. Adam, Eve, the devil, they all thought the same thing. If it's someone else's fault, then I'll be okay. If it's someone else's problem, Then I'll be fine. And somehow, with inside of them, they had bought into the thought that blame is the only way to release the burden of failure. That blame is the only way to release the burden of consequences. It's the only way to fade the fear that they were feeling inside of them. For those of you who are familiar with Genesis chapter 3, let me ask you this question. Did them blaming, Adam saying, the woman, the woman you gave me, Eve saying, the devil, the devil saying, God, did the blaming stop the consequences? Have you read Genesis 3? Did the blame stop the consequences. No. Blame didn't change anything. Blame didn't stop anything. Did they just pass the buck and move on? Is that what happened here? No. Eve had consequences and as a result of that so did the entire female race. Adam had consequences and as a result of that So did the entire male race. The devil had consequences, and as a result of that, all of you— Listen, the blame didn't stop the consequences. What they feared, even in the blame, it didn't stop. The consequences kept rolling in. Everyone had consequences for their own actions, and even with all the blaming, with even with all the shifting, no one escaped. Listen— Blaming others does not stop the consequences of our own actions. It just perpetuates them. And passing the buck can become costly. Very, very costly. When we Embrace blame as a pattern for dealing with our failures. You know what blame breeds? Bitterness. Resentment. Because then what we do is we just look back at how everything else is everybody else's fault. And we just stew and marinate. Blame does not break down consequences. It builds them. It causes them to have greater impact. And it gives birth to resentment and so many other emotions that destroy relationships. Listen, blame does not release the burden. It doesn't solve the problem it's not the answer it only perpetuates it so in my failure in your failure whether it has to do with another individual or it has to do with God if blame is not the answer what is the answer what is the answer that will help us relationally with other people and with God well What's the opposite of blame? What's the opposite of disowning what you should own? It's taking ownership, right? Or an ugly word we don't like called responsibility. Responsibility that I'm responsible for my own actions regardless of how another person's actions have influenced mine. I am responsible for my own actions regardless of how another person's actions have influenced mine and the truth is is we know this intellectually that we need to own it and we need to take responsibility you know where we struggle with this it's not intellectually like we know this it's difficult emotionally we struggle with this emotionally because it's scary when things are my fault because if it's my fault then i'm faulty right That's how we think, and that's how we translate it. And if I'm faulty, then I'm a failure. And if I'm a failure, then I'm living in fear. And if I'm living in fear, I can never be free. That's how this works. It's how it steamrolls or snowballs. And you know how to accept responsibility? I'm about to drop some really deep truth on you. That's sarcasm. (laughs) You know how you accept responsibility? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The two hardest words in the English language to join. That's why you look at a kid when they're young. Say you're sorry. Am am I not, is this not true? Like, and and all we do as adults is we just don't do this. We just do this. We just change the body language a little bit, right? Like, how do we own our our actions? How do we take responsibility? I'm sorry. It's not deep truth. We teach our kids to do it but it is difficult truth it is difficult truth it was me I was wrong it's my fault that's the opposite of not me It is me. It was me. And when we accept responsibility for something, now I'll use a biblical word. We can properly repent. You know, that's what repentance is, it's just the biblical word for I'm sorry. When we accept responsibility for something, we can properly repent. And when we are willing to accept responsibility for our own mistakes and sins towards another person or ultimately towards God, we can know true repentance, and then we will experience genuine forgiveness. Listen, the answer is not running from what we're responsible for. That's not the answer. Listen, running from responsibility has never fixed a single relationship. I'll say it again running from responsibility has never fixed a single relationship. I don't care if it's a husband or a wife or parents to their children or children to their parents or fellow church members to other church members or different parties of a crazy country. Running from responsibility only ruins relationships. But genuine repentance allows us to experience genuine forgiveness. And comprehend the depths of God's unconditional love. So as we close today, I think there's three things very quickly that we can take from this message. Because when, you, when, when someone preaches a sermon, everybody that's listening to it is on a different wavelength in relation to that sermon. They're hearing it from where their life is in that moment. So I just want to give you really quickly three practical applications. The first one, some of you, there have absolutely been things that have happened in your life that were beyond your control. Your actions didn't create your circumstances. You are not responsible for that. And you know what the problem when we don't understand that is, is stuff that we shouldn't be owning begins to own us. It dominates us. So one, if it truly was beyond the scope of your actions, out of your control, you have to release that. Say, God, I don't know why this happened. I don't know how this happened. It hurts. It's been painful, but I can't own this anymore. This is not mine. You got to release that. Number two, you are a not me ghost. You are a blame game expert. This morning, you are pointing the finger at everyone else, but deep down inside, Even though you're afraid to admit, you know that you share some of the responsibility. And where you are right now in a relationship, in a situation, you know deep down inside, even though you can't verbalize those words, you know, those two hard words, you can't do it. It's like Jim Carrey and liar, liar, right? I just can't do it. It's time to own it. It's time to own what you're prone to disown. God accept responsibility. Responsibility is the only way to freedom. It's the only way to freedom. And third, you're here and you're well aware of all the mistakes you've made. And you've been listening to this message through the lens of I'm not blaming other people and you're not simply blaming yourself either. You're beating yourself up. You're crushing yourself. And in crushing yourself, you become a prisoner of your past. And you just have to know that that is not God's plan for you. God is not a God of prisons. He is not a God of fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. John 8 says, whom the Son has set free is free. Indeed, God is a God of forgiveness. And he is a God of freedom. And he is a God of the future. He is a God that says, yes, you made a mistake. You sinned. You did something you shouldn't have done. You hurt that person. Own it be responsible repent freedom will come through forgiveness can we stand together this morning and sing this song and I'm going to come back in just a moment and close with a prayer but wherever you are on the spectrum of those three things today let's begin to move in freedom in these areas of our life